Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Howdy, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. I am so excited to share with you today's conversation with one of my personal conservation heroes, Dr. Carl Safina. Dr. Safina's work explores how humans are changing the living world and what those changes mean for wild places and for other human beings. His work has won the MacArthur Genius Prize, Pew and Guggenheim Fellowships, book awards from the Lannan, Orion, and the National Academies, and the John Burroughs, James Beard, and George Rabb Medals. Safina hosted the 10-part PBS series, Saving the Ocean with Carl Safina, and he holds the Endowed Chair for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University, and he is also the founder of the not-for-profit Safina Center. On the show today, we dive into how a boy from Brooklyn became a world-renowned ecologist and author focused on saving the natural world. We take a peek into the commercial fishing world, and Carl shares a bit from his latest book, including his time in the Caribbean studying sperm whales. We packed a lot into this hour-long episode. Enjoy. Carl Safino, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so thrilled to have you on the show today. Well, I'm really delighted to be with you today. You've had quite the career from working in the field to writing books, producing documentaries, and you've been a powerful voice for our oceans and nature as a whole. What inspired you to start a career in the natural sciences? I just always loved nature. Um, living things, mostly animals. I just always loved animals. I grew up in an apartment in Brooklyn, not a, not a wild place by any means. <laughs> there were not many animals around at all, but my father's hobby was raising canaries. So I got to see the lives of birds at extremely close range. I could watch birds uh, getting on and off their eggs and feeding their tiny hatchlings from three inches away. And most people don't get to do that. And for some reason, I just found that extremely compelling and totally fascinating. Then uh, when I was seven, I started raising homing pigeons in the backyard. I didn't really get to see a wild place until I was nine. And we went to the mountains in uh, the Catskill Mountains in New York, lower New York State for a month. So it may be that it may be that I was, uh, you know, a combination of tantalized by these very close range experiences that I could see so intimately, and then also feeling like nature itself was a very wonderful, very rare thing, not something that I was near or around. Um, so it might have been those things. But anyway, I just, I wanted to make that my life and try to figure out how to make a living doing what I loved, which was being around animals, being outdoors, uh, being around natural things, natural systems, not, not, not farm animals. I didn't grow up anywhere near a farm, but um, it was always the natural world that really grabbed me and, and the behavior of animals that grabbed me. So I just tried to do that for my working life and much to my surprise uh, in fact my total amazement it worked it has you've had quite the illustrative career so when you graduated high school you knew you wanted to work in the natural sciences what made you choose the colleges that you did attend and I mean you went all the way through and got your PhD is this something that you knew you wanted right out the gate well, it's kind of a it's kind of a short, sad story because I had essentially <laughs> no mentoring or guidance. And um, when I when I told my high school guidance counselor that I was interested in animals, she thought that I should go to an agronomy school and, 
and become a farmer. She didn't really <laughs> know what any other work with animals could possibly mean, I think. And I knew that that was way off base for me. It wasn't at all what I was talking about. But I had, I had simply no idea how anybody does anything like research on wild animals. I only knew that I saw some of that on television. But um, my parents were of no additional help. And further, my father, told they didn't have much money at all. My father told me, well, you're just going to the local community college. And maybe after two years, we'll see what happens. So I went to the local community college. It, it was it was absolutely awful. It was actually much worse than my high school. I had gone to a rather progressive public high school where they had some interesting programs and people coming in and stuff like that. And the community college was just deadening. Um, and then a friend of mine who was in that community college with me, who I had known since I was 10 years old, had applied to another state university school. And he was going for an interview and simply asked me if I felt like taking a ride with him. So I took a ride with him. And that's how I found out about that school. So it's not at all like people coached me and told me what to do, or I figured it out, or I understood anything. I was I, I understood nothing. And I was really bumbling around not knowing at all how to get started. And what I think is even stranger is that after I got my bachelor's degree and had been in a four-year college being taught by people with PhDs, I, I didn't understand what graduate school was or what a master's degree was or really what a PhD was. And I remember... I had a professor in my last semester of my senior year at college who I liked really a lot, and he was doing some research on birds, and I volunteered to help him, which was sort of a sort of a first step. Um, and I one day I just I just got all my courage together and I said, I said, "Can you explain to me what is a master's degree?" <laughs> and uh, he he eventually wound up introducing me to the woman who became my thesis advisor for both my master's degree and my PhD. So it's not like I really knew where I was heading. I didn't. I only knew what I wanted to avoid, which was going into business. And I knew what I wanted to do in a sense, which was be outdoors studying wild animals but i i didn't understand anything about what you have to do and it's kind of it's it's really remarkable how starting so slowly and so cluelessly things eventually pulled together yeah that really is remarkable i love that you got your start volunteering in a lab um, I think that's that's something that I tell a lot of my listeners is to get experience volunteering usually because that's the best way that people are able to incorporate um, incorporate people into their work, right? And then and then you actually were we're not afraid to ask questions like how do you actually get a master's degree? Yes, well, we were not in a lab when I asked that question. We were walking around in a turn colony by the beach. That's mm. I volunteered to do the work work with him and it was entirely outdoors. It was a little bit of exactly what I had always wished for. I had done some things before that, not much. When I was in high school, I found out about a guy who was doing bird banding and he was just doing it as a hobby. It didn't didn't lead to any connections, but it led it gave me some skills. I, I learned a lot of birds that I didn't even know existed. I learned how to put bands on their legs, handle them, take them out of nets and things like that. That that all was those those were skills that I used a lot later on. Mm -hmm. And when I was uh, in my the summer between my junior and senior year as an undergrad, I I very, very energetically sought out and volunteered for a project where 
peregrine falcons were being raised in captivity at Cornell University. They had been almost entirely wiped out by DDT and other hard pesticides, but those pesticides had been banned for a few years. People at Cornell were breeding the falcons, and then it was time to start trying to reintroduce them. And I was able to get a volunteer job, well, paid a little bit, it's mostly a volunteer job, um, <laughs> reintroducing, putting, putting the baby falcons out and taking care of them for about six weeks until they were flying strongly and starting to disperse. And um, that was really... That was really fantastic, but that again didn't really lead me to anything. It wasn't until the professor who was working on the turns that doors he he started to open some doors to me, and things started to get started. You so he opens he started to open doors for you, and in, in that that's what led ultimately led to your master's. You studied seabirds for both your master's and your PhD, correct? Yes. Not coincidentally. And um, <laughs> yeah, um, I forget what I was just about to say, but that's, that's when things started to, you know, I started to see how people actually study things professionally, what it, what it means to be a professor at a university and all these things that I really didn't understand very well before. I like that they, he opened those doors for you. So what, out of, out of curiosity, what, what exactly did you study what were your thesis for your master's or your PhD? Well, I got a bachelor's degree in environmental science, and then okay. I went into an ecology program at Rutgers University. Mm -hmm. I studied black skimmers, which are a type of seabird, that a very unusual type of seabird that nests in colonies. And then for my PhD, I studied common terns and uh, their relationship to the fish that they eat and to the larger predatory fish that are both their best friends and their worst enemies because the, the predatory fish drive the little fish up to the surface mm -hmm. where the terns can sometimes get really a lot of them, but they also eat so many of those small fish themselves, the, the larger fish do, that eventually they make the food for the terns very scarce. So hmm. it was a very unusual double-edged relationship that I was studying. And that's what I did for my PhD. That is unusual. We have a, I think one of my favorite terns is here in Florida. We get the little least terns that nest in their colonies. Oh, they're yes. Su they're super tiny and adorable. I think that's probably one of my favorites. Uh-huh. Yeah, they are wonderful. So I wanted to chat with you about fisheries. I'm currently reading your book, Song for the Blue Ocean. Uh -huh. and it's really great, uh, super enlightening. And Thank you me. get up and close with and personal with the commercial fishing world. And in the first part of the book, you start to look at what happened to the bluefin tuna. And the premise of why you were doing boots on the ground research is because you wanted to put a moratorium or significantly reduce the catch limits of the tuna. And you had put a proposal into congress to do this um and naturally not, the commercial fishermen not into congress but into cites which is a okay international treaty organization that handles trade in species they designate as endangered they they can mm -hmm. ban the trade of certain species if they designate them as endangered i gotcha so you're looking for this endangered designation for the bluefin right and the commercial fishermen naturally were very upset because that's their livelihood. And they, some of them thought that you and the, the science that supported this proposal were incorrect. Um, so you actually went out with them and you flew through the air with these commercial fishermen and plowed through the seas in search of the answer. And one of the things that struck me was your communication with them. Um, I mean, you had very opposing differing opinions and everything seemed to remain civil. So how are you most able to so effectively communicate with these fishermen? Well, I, I do a lot of fishing and I, I, I like fishing. I like being around the water and boats. I generally know what I'm talking about. So we could have conversations and 
for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, I, I, I like them all personally. It's just that this fish that they were fishing for was being very depleted. And it, it, you know, generally isn't one person's fault. It's that there's just too much of something going on. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, we, we got along well. I liked them. <laughs> and uh, um, things were almost always civil, yes. Oddly, <laughs> oddly enough, some of the fishermen disliked each other a lot more than they disliked me at times. <laughs> I could kind of see that. It's, I mean, essentially, they're direct competition, right? So, <laughs> yes, they all blamed they all blamed each other. They because they have they use different kinds of fishing gear. So, the ones that use uh, certain kinds of gear called long lines. Mm-hmm. They they would say, you know, we can't catch the last fish. The, then the ones that see them from the air and put nets around them said, well, we can only catch the ones that are at the surface. It's the ones with the long lines that could catch the last fish. <laughs> and then the harpooner said, well, we only throw spears at them. It's very inefficient. We could never catch the last fish. And the hook and line people said, we catch so few one at a time, we could never catch the last fish. And nobody could catch very many fish. But for some reason, all of them were going out of business because <laughs> there were not very many fish left. What ended up happening with the CITES designation? It failed. It, it failed mainly because Japan, well, you go to these meetings and there are different countries. It's a little bit like... It's a little bit like the UN kind of a thing. And mm-hmm. the and there are procedures and rules. And Japan, which was the main importer of these fish, made sure that when the bluefin tuna proposal came up for a debate, that they invoked some procedural thing that actually prevented any debate from happening in exchange for a kind of a vague promise to track the catch better. And, um, and that's why it failed, but it did put enough pressure on the fishing countries to reduce the catches for a few years. It it made a difference. I, I think, I think things would have been a lot worse if we hadn't tried that. And if we hadn't gone through that process, Later on, about 10 years later, it was it was tried again. I was not in that process that time, the second time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was made to fail again because mm-hmm. they're very good at kind of rigging the process in their favor, as as we're kind of seeing in other branches of government these days. Interesting. So, I mean, this book was written in the 1990s, correct? What has, yeah. what has remained the same or different about the tuna fishing industry since then or as a result? Around the world, the tuna fishing has greatly intensified. Mm. The world population of humans has greatly increased. Mm-hmm. And many more species of tuna are much more depleted than they were then. The bluefin tuna has kind of limped along at a low level. They haven't been wiped out. They're, they're still caught. There's still a lot of pressure on them. They, they certainly have not been allowed to recover. Mm-hmm. They, and then there's a good year of young fish. But when they start to get big enough, most of them get caught. and The population never really gets to recover. It just sort of bounces along at a low level. Around the world, other other types of tuna fishing has been better developed since that book. And those fish are not in good shape. Many of them are considered overfished. We certainly see far, far less of the the five species of tuna that live off of New York, the waters off of New York. We... um, you know, we used to see them a lot and catch them a lot. And the 
the fishing has become really quite poor most of the time. Really, it's really been it's really kind of terrible now. So yeah, I've seen a lot a lot more depletion since then. Mm. And the same could be said, I think, for most fishing industries. Around most of the world, that's true. But ironically, the United States has one of, if not the best, um, fisheries management regimes since the late 1990s. After I worked on the Bluefin Tuna Initiative, we worked to overhaul the fishing law in the United States with a thing called the Sustainable Fisheries Act, which we managed, again, just shocking ourselves, we managed to get Congress to pass. And it requires that fishery managers let depleted populations of fish recover. So in the waters of the United States, we have a lot of recovering fish populations that are in much better shape now than they were 20 years ago. But the, but the fish that are the big migratory ones that spend a lot of their lives outside U.S. waters and are subject to international management are doing generally poorly. Mm-hmm. And those are most of the most of the tunas, most of the billfishes, most of the sharks. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of exceptions. White sharks, which are more coastal, are increasing very noticeably. And swordfish on our side of the ocean are increasing noticeably. They used to be pretty abundant. All these things really used to be quite abundant. But they also used to be in a lot worse shape 20 years ago. But the rest of the world, fishing has continued to just um, grind the fish populations down lower and lower hmm. for the most part, just you know, to make a generalization. Kind of shifting gears a little bit into more sustainable fishing. Uh, I watched your PBS series, Saving Our Oceans, which my husband and I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, oh, and, yeah, and you, uh, you traveled around and you visited different places that have different versions of sustainable fishing and one of them that struck me was a small island off zanzibar called masali i think it was pronounced yes Uh, we were based in pemba and the island that they were protecting is called masali yes okay those those are both off the coast of tanzania they're part of the group of islands that is referred to as the zanzibar archipelago wonderful so one thing that struck me was that they intentionally use mesh that fish can easily see so that they reduce the bycatch and they only catch the fish that they want. Um, and then you also traveled to Mexico where a similar model was in place that in that people regulate their own fishery. Um, and then I just thought that it was really fascinating that there all these smaller groups of much poorer areas uh, kind of all work together for a sustainable fishery. So these are just some examples. In your opinion, what does a sustainable fishery look like? And what are other hallmark examples of how to regulate a fishery? Well, I think, you know, sustainable means that you can keep doing it without hurting the resource. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of letting them breed faster than you kill them. <laughs> and and there's a lot of different ways to configure that depending on where you are, what you're fishing for. Are you, you know, is it the tropics? Is it a coral reef? Is it a place where you're catching fish that are only there three months out of the year and migrating around the rest of the ocean the rest of the time? So there's all different ways. An interesting thing about the two examples that you mentioned is that the local people had the authority, they had the legal authority to regulate themselves in this local area and they depended really heavily on the health of that area so the feedback loop between the health of the resource and their own lives was very direct and very short we could never really do that in most of the united states because we have fisheries that ship things all over the place we have fish coming in from all over the world. We don't have a system where local people can fish locally and be in charge of that area because 
it's a free country and people can go all up and down the coast with their boats if they want to. Mm-hmm. And they can go out to sea for weeks at a time and potentially even go not only into international waters, but they could go into the waters of other countries. Uh, most countries don't allow that to happen anymore. Um, so the, you know, the thing is that the, the feedbacks are not as direct. So if, if people, if people here on, let's say the East coast, if they deplete their local area, they'll just go farther. And that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the story of fish depletion is the local thing gets depleted. The easy thing gets depleted. You go farther, you fish harder. You need bigger boats. Bigger boats can go even farther. And that's the way it is. But these poor people, uh, as you noted, you know, they're they're poor and Mm -hmm. their options are limited. So if they don't take care of what they have, it's it's catastrophic for them. Mm -hmm. That is a big incentive for getting together and agreeing and taking it easy. But the Mm -hmm. other the other part is you, you know, you can can't have a lot of pressure from the outside or you have to be able to defend and enforce against that. And that requires that you not live in a place where there's just loads and loads of people all over the coast, that there has to be some room. Mm -hmm. And those situations are also not that easy to come across, especially in the United States and other developed places. That's very true. Yeah, the two examples that I gave, they did seem to be a little bit more remote. Um, yeah. I mean, they were, they were very remote. <laughs> right, right. Uh, something else kind of on a different vein of a sustainability. We mentioned earlier longlining and kind of what seems to me to be the longlining would be single hook and line or the swordfish harpooners that you went out with off yeah. of St. George's Bank. In my head, that would be a more sustainable fishery because you have no bycatch. So the only fish that's harmed, it's not like you collect them in lots and lots of lines and you're not sure what you're going to catch or in a huge net that the harpooners are only catching what they shoot, essentially. Yeah, they actually have to stick the fish in the back. I mean, they don't shoot at it. They don't even throw the harpoon. They 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 jam it into the back of the swordfish. So needless to say that's a lot less efficient than a a net that's miles long or a long line that is tens of miles long with hundreds of hooks on it Mm -hmm. and their overhead is lower what it takes to make a profit is a lot less fish and they they have zero bycatch there's there's nothing that they catch that they're not trying to catch and all they're trying to catch is swordfish and they cannot catch babies either. They have to have big, big enough fish that they can hit with the harpoon. Right. And I'm sure that there are also regulations on that. But for them, it's not, you know, even if there weren't regulations for them, it may not actually be worthwhile to shoot or to stick a smaller fish anyway. Yeah, there are a lot of limitations. They, they do have an overall quota. They can only fish in very good weather. It has to be a flat sea where you can see if a sword fish is swimming near the surface they the the fish are not there all year round so it's it's really very limited and when people could only harpoon swordfish before long lines were really developed or these huge monofilament nets were even invented there were just plenty of swordfish around i mean the the amount of fish that people saw, if you if you read about what people wrote in the 50s about how many swordfish they saw, it's, you know, it's mind boggling from mm-hmm. what you would see nowadays. But as I said, nowadays, it's better than it was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've been on two of those trips, widely separated in time. I think they were about 10 years apart. Uh, and and the second trip, it was it was much better. You could see that there were, were more fish around. That's really heartening to hear. Yeah, it was heartening. Yeah. So I watched your TED Talk of your last book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. And you open 
uh, something that kind of gets you. you. You go into how amazing octopuses are and that they use tools like eight and they can recognize faces. And mostly we enjoy them boiled, um, which got yes. some laughs from the audience. And then you kind of like sit and think about it. And I thought this is a really poignant way of highlighting how we treat animals that don't necessarily look like us or inhabit the same terrestrial environment. In in your TED Talk, you, you advocate for and thinking about animals as other living creatures more. They have neurons that fire the same way that our neurons fire. And I read on your website that you advocate for eating more mindfully. What exactly does that look like for you and how has that changed over the years? Yeah, I think it's important to say what it looks like for me because I'm I'm not in the business of telling people what to eat. Um, so for me, here's how I look at it. Um, I live on the coast here and we can go clamming and we can catch some fish that are abundant. And I do both of those things. So I, I'm not vegan and I'm not vegetarian because of that. <laughs> However, um, farming of all kinds has a lot of problems associated with it that I would prefer to have little to do with. Like most people, I can't raise all my own fruits and vegetables, so I do buy some of those things, but I try to limit what I buy, e even the vegetables that I buy. Um, and as far as farmed animals, I, I don't order the I, I don't order the meat or the products of farmed animals. I don't I don't buy milk. Um, I don't buy meat. I don't order meat in restaurants. And that's not because it's bad for things to die because everything dies. It's because mm -hmm. in farming, animals are made to live much worse than mm -hmm. they are made to die. And the cruelty of that bothers me the environmental effects of the tremendous amount of landscape that is ruined and disrupted bothers me. And even for vegetable farming, the amount of fuel, the amount of pesticides, the unnaturalness of it, the amount of land that is no longer available for any other living things is really a terrible thing. And so, um, you know, I buy as much as I can. I buy from local green grocers, small local farms. And, um, and as I say, I also eat some of these fish and shellfish that I get myself. And that's, that's my diet for me. And those are the reasons for me. There's an article on the web you can see. It's called What I Eat by Me, Carl Safina. <laughs> and it explains this in some detail. So that's my story. Thank you for highlighting that. I think it's something that people have a disconnect about, um, particularly as it pertains to the oceans that and the environmental impacts of farming both vegetables and animals. Um, and I like that in your TED Talk and just now you highlighted that farmed animals don't get to live that they were meant to, right? So when you go out fishing or when you go out clamming, that fish or clam is living its wildlife as it was meant to up until a predator came and ate it. And you just happen to be that predator. Uh, so that I feel like that was, it's more of a circle of life looking way of looking at things versus the factory way. Well, that is how I see it. And I do think that it is, you know, I think that is real. I, I'm not, I'm not denying that fish, feel pain and stress and panic when they're hooked but mm -hmm. they they get to be who they're supposed to be until a very short interval of time when i interfere with their life and you know create my own food by doing so so mm -hmm. i'm i'm mindful of how i fish i'm mindful of how the fish die on my boat we we make them die very quickly and very easily by sliding them into a bath of ice water Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, I think uh, there are compromises and that that's that's kind of my compromise. But I, I also like that I take the responsibility for creating some of my food. I wouldn't want to 
entirely be buying all the food that I eat and get none of it from the real world. We have a small vegetable garden at my home. We're not very good vegetable gardeners. <laughs> we're not consistent enough at it. We're not home enough to always take care of it. But we do grow some of our food, and, and that's very very gratifying also. We never use any pesticides at all. Mm -hmm. Oh, and we have, I should mention, we do have several hens that lay eggs and they get let out of the coop every day into an unfenced yard that um, is surrounded by woods on two sides and uh, a backyard and a street on the other two sides. They're, they're completely unrestrained and they, they come out at will and they go back in in the evening and we close them up for their own safety. So I think as far as their experience of their lives, it's, it's about as good as any laying hen gets. Um, and when they stop laying, when they get a little old and they stop laying, um, we're very happy to have them there as companion animals. You know, I don't, I don't mean that in the formal sense, but we just enjoy having our chickens around. So, um, you know, they they mostly mostly their end comes from old age. Every every couple of years, a hawk gets one, mm -hmm. and uh, that's part of life as well. Absolutely, yeah. There is a certain satisfaction of getting making your own food. We do have a vegetable garden here as well, and uh, we're not as consistent as you mentioned, but. It is, there is a satisfaction of being able to go out to your own yard and collect your food. And my next door neighbors have chickens. I haven't ventured into that yet, but I love hearing them. Uh-huh. And, but he has to build a fortress. Otherwise the hawks get them on the regular. It's a big fortress, but they're in it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have hawks regularly around here and yet we, we lose about one chicken every two years. It's, it's really surprised me how few hawk attacks we've had uh, we have a, hmm. we have a lot of bushes in the yard and i noticed in the winter when the hawks would be hungrier and the, and the birds would be more exposed because the leaves are off the trees they mm -hmm. do spend more time under the bushes there's a lot a lot of places where they can kind of tuck out of view mm -hmm. they do that so anyway <laughs> digressing from chickens <laughs> We got from bluefin tuna to chickens. <laughs> We're going all over the map today. Yes. Um, so I want to chat a little bit about the Safina Center. I read that you founded the Blue Oceans Institute, but when I type that in, I get the Safina Center. So is, did the Blue Oceans Institute morph into the Safina Center? And then what inspired well, you to start this? Well, even less than morph, we just changed the name. Okay. Because... <laughs> Um, because the phrase blue ocean was appearing in the names of many things. Yes. There was a tr trucking company, uh, an electrical company, a business management strategy, a Christian evangelical sect, and they were all <laughs> called blue oceans. And there's, there's more and more now that I've noticed. So uh, the other thing was that people didn't understand that Blue Ocean Institute was connected to me or that I was connected to Blue Ocean Institute. Mm. So one of my board members, whose business is named after him, said, why don't you just name it after you? And <laughs> that won't be confusing anymore to anybody. And uh, I said, well, I don't want anybody to think that, you know, it's an ego thing for me and I have to have my name on it. But we tried it and nobody seemed to think it was an ego thing for me. And <laughs> it's a lot less confusing. So it is the same thing, although we've changed what we do. I think we've been at it now for 17 years. Yeah, 17 years. And at first we had more of a, more of a staff with more programs of different kinds. And we've narrowed the focus to creative products that reflect what we know scientifically about conservation and nature. We, we also are not 100% focused on the ocean anymore. Well, a lot of what we do is focused on non-ocean kinds of conservation matters and issues. So when I say creative products, I mean people who are writers, people who are photographers, filmmakers. One person is a sound artist. 
we only have one person who is a scientist who mainly does science. Mm-hmm. The rest of I'm a scientist who mainly writes nowadays, <laughs> and um, and the other people are like I say, they're journalists, they're uh, filmmakers, other kinds of writers, and things like that. And now, do you call these other people that are uh, affiliated with the Safina Center? These are your fellows. Yes, those are so, our fellows. Yes, I really like that term. I don't know. It's just what, like very chummy. I what like. What do you like? Because it's just like, oh, these are my fellows. Like, I don't know. It's very familial <laughs> sounding. <laughs> well, I, I never thought of it that way. But I, I don't want to be anybody's boss. I don't want to tell them what to do. I don't want to write job descriptions. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of that, and I'm, I'm over it. So. Mm-hmm. I want to work with people whose work inspires me and whose work is so creative or so awesome that I just get an enormous kick out of it. So those are the people that we seek and those are the people that we have. We don't advertise. Um, we don't even advertise for the fellowships. We go after people who, whose work has raised their profile and somehow gotten on my radar and gotten my attention. Gotcha. That was one of my questions. What does it take to become a fellow and what does it mean to be a Safina Center fellow? Well, what it takes is you kind of have to know a lot and and do work that is accurate and factual, but do it in a way that the, the product of the work is really intended to move people emotionally. For instance, um, we have one of our fellows is a woman who paints primates that she has cared for, orphan primates that she has cared for and known personally. So she paints these very intimate, very individual portraits. And you might say, well, that's not science. And I would say, yeah, that's not science. It's not, not everything that we do is science, but it's very accurate. It's more accurate than saying, here's a picture of a rhesus macaque. Um, you know, it's it's here's this picture of Dolly, the macaque that I raised for two years mm-hmm. when I was working in Cameroon. So um, we we go deep and we we do things that are not easy to do that require a lot of what what you could call witnessing people who are really out there and they're really bringing stories back and bringing experiences back. So it's, it's those kinds of people. That's, that's our focus now. If you look at the earlier fellows who are already termed out, pe- people who are no longer fellows with us, so, some of them did more science-y kinds of science and more policy work. But um, we're, we're focusing more and more on people who are doing more artistic kinds of work and translation. Well, thank you for that. When we spoke last week, you mentioned you have a new book coming out, and I'm really curious about it. Would you mind telling the audience a bit more about it and when it will be released? It will be released in April. I actually have, before I get to that, let me just say I have two books that are being released in April. One of them is no. the second of, of a two-part young reader's adaptation of my last book, which is called Beyond Words. So okay. we, did, we did a two-part adaptation of that for young readers, meaning adolescents and um, you know maybe, maybe ages like 11 to 16 or something in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the first part of that came out this past year, and the second part is coming out in April. But also in April, the book you're referring to, it's called Becoming Wild. And that book is about cultures of non-human animals. Now, by, by definition, they're social non-human animals <clears throat> because culture is what you learn socially. But the themes of the book are how animal cultures raise families, create beauty, and achieve peace. And there are three focal animals in the book, sperm whales, macaws, and chimpanzees. And there are many dozens of others that are mentioned throughout the book in different ways to um, you know, illustrate different things and give, give different examples and tell different stories. 
That's fascinating. Would you mind sharing an example? I'm very curious, what does a creative culture look like for a sperm whale or even a macaw? Well, sperm whales are really surprising. They First of all, their social structure is a lot like African elephants. Mm. They live in female-led groups where it's um, a, an older female is sort of the matriarch or leader. Her daughters are with her and their children are with them. And then when the male children become adolescents, they leave the family and they live a different kind of a life than the females do. So that's a lot like African elephants right there. Mm -hmm. But the other thing about them is that they are not only in family groups, but the family groups form what scientists call clans. The clans are identified with codes of cliques. The, the whales make cliques and um, they use cliques for sonar, but they use them a different way for sonar. And then they use them another way as a code for their identity. So they're able to say, I am so-and-so with the such-and-such family and we are members of the such-and-such clan. And sperm whales are the only known creatures besides humans where they they have the ability to understand whether strangers that they've never met before are in their social group or not in their social group. So we humans would do that, that with things like flags or language or religion or so we have we have lots of different ways of identifying different kinds of groups that that someone a stranger we meet is either in or out of our group sperm whales have these clans but most other social animals have to know everybody individually in, in their group so even though elephants may know hundreds of other elephants from different families they they wouldn't know by a signal whether an elephant that is a stranger is in their group. There's no such thing as being in an elephant group if they are a stranger. Mm. If they're mm-hmm. a stranger, they're simply not in your group, not okay. in your population. But sperm whale clans can be thousands of whales spread over enormous distances of ocean, and yet within the same area, there may be a couple of other clans and they will socialize with members of their own clan and they will not socialize with members of a different clan. All of this is really pretty astonishing. And it's, it's just been learned in the last, um, oh, maybe 30 years or so, um, you know, and people are still studying it and still learning it better and better. So that's an example. Have, did you get to do any uh, field research for this book? Uh, everything I write is based on field research. So I went to the Caribbean to be with sperm whales and the scientists. I went that's to Peru, I went to Peru to be with macaws and the scientists, and I went to Uganda to be with chimpanzees and the scientists. And um, they were all, all all wild animals, not you know free living animals, not not in cages or captive groups. Amazing. That's incredible. So you got to see sperm whales down in the Caribbean. I did. Yes. (laughs) Were you up close and personal at all? Or is it more from, I see a fluke in the distance? Um, Sometimes just about close enough to touch. Oh, man, that's incredible. It's incredible. Yes. I think the most amazing thing about my life is that I somehow in this almost magical way I somehow have the ability of contacting the scientists whose work most interests me and saying can I come and spend a couple of weeks with you and they say okay and then (laughs) I go and that's completely incredible it really is and you've had some wonderful experiences 
Yeah, mind-blowing experiences. Well, thank you for sharing your new book. I'll definitely uh, put a link to your website and all of that on in the show notes and refer to the your new book books coming out in April. I have a couple of final questions for you before we wrap up. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? I know when we chatted before, you mentioned you literally had hundreds, if not more than that. Um, so I'm looking for maybe the most illustrative stories, and this could be the most incredible day. Like I rode a sperm whale, um, probably not wild animal, but or like kind of the worst worst day, and you can't believe you even made it back, but that happened, and it's a really illustrative story. Well, let's skip the worst day. Okay, sounds good. I'll go, and and I should say that uh, almost every day, almost every day in the in in and around any kind of field site has been utterly interesting and beautiful and fantastic. So um, the worst part is usually the drive to the airport from my house. <laughs> Fair enough. But, um, one one amazing. I'll just tell you one story about an amazing place and. In, I know I was there about 12 days and it kind of happened every evening, but I remember it as as one occurrence. And, and what it is, is that I was on a, a little tiny island in the northwest Hawaiian Islands called Laysan. And, and I was there when I was studying and writing about Laysan albatrosses for my book, Eye of the Albatross. Mm-hmm. On Laysan, the island is about three miles across you can walk around it in a couple of hours usually when you're on land anywhere even on a lot of islands you're on land and you look out to sea but Mm -hmm. this island was so small that it gave you the impression that you're on an ocean planet on a little patch of emergent land Mm -hmm. and since most of the planet is ocean, the planet's surface is ocean, it was a much more realistic impression of life than I've really ever gotten anywhere else. And on this little island, there are literally millions of seabirds. And a lot of them are fishing during the day. And they, many of them come back at night. Some of them are nocturnal, but the nocturnal ones then leave at night. So during the end of the day, around sunset, there is this chatter that's been going on all day that gets turned up to an incredible roar, mm-hmm. an incredible roar of millions of birds streaming in and streaming out in all directions from the center of this planet, this little dot of land, out to the circular ocean horizon. And... It made me sense, really viscerally, what the planet has been like for most of its history. A a planet not dominated by by human beings or the noise of motors or things like that. And it was very, very powerful to be there. I'm incredibly lucky to have experienced that, and it has always stayed with me. What a beautiful moment. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for asking. What advice would you give to an aspiring marine biologist or somebody that wants to pursue a career in the natural sciences? Well, the advice I would give is ignore everybody who's telling you that that's not practical. (laughs) Ignore anybody who's telling you you can't make a living doing that or you can make more money doing this or that or whatever they they want you to do because what they want you to do is probably not what you want to do mm-hmm. and to pursue what you want to do thinking that one one thing does tend to lead to another if you pursue it really energetically if you make as many connections along the way as you're going through try to meet as many people as you can go to conferences if you can volunteer if you can And most people I know who've done that, probably everybody I know who's done that, has 
really connected with their future and, and gotten to do what they were trying to do and had a very, very interesting time along the way. Great advice. Two more, two more things and then we'll wrap sure. it up. Okay. What is, what is your favorite sea creature and why? And I'm very curious about this. Oh, answer. I hate this question. <laughs> so I've had, I've had guests give me a vertebrate and, and an invertebrate, if that helps at all. Well, I mean, you have to say, what is what are you talking about when you say sea creature? Is an albatross a sea creature? Yeah, I've, I've counted seabirds in the past. Okay, well, then we'll go. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you three. Uh, uh, we'll go with wandering. I mean, there are literally, first of all, it's not a contest because a, a lot of these creatures are just, they're just so wonderful. And many of them I've gotten to know personally and I, I I love I love them and I'm inspired by them and I'm awed by them all the time. So that's why I hate the question. So <laughs> I'll just give you three that are among the highlights for me. Perfect. One is wandering albatross o- only because I love seabirds. Albatrosses are the most extreme seabirds and wandering albatrosses are basically the most extreme albatrosses. So we'll go with wandering albatross and then Wait, how are they? How are they so extreme? You might you gotta explain that. Well, they're the largest. They have the largest wings in nature. Mm-hmm. They often fly hundreds of miles without flapping, and they can spend years at sea without coming back to land. So mm-hmm. that's pretty extreme. Yes. And um, and then two that I've known personally, you know, kind of intimately for a lot of my life, mako shark and bluefin tuna. Both of them are, you know, they all get big. All three of these things get big. Maybe that's a guy thing. I don't know. (laughs) But, um, you know, they get your attention, certainly, when you see something that can weigh hundreds of pounds and is incredibly powerful and sleek, beautiful, fast, in the case of these two creatures with gills that I just mentioned, the, the bluefin tuna and the mako, they are both warm-blooded to different extents, which many, many animals with gills are not warm-blooded, but they are. And um, it shows in how they, how they move and what they do. Um, and they're, I, they're just spectacular. They're, just, uh, they're extremely beautiful, extremely powerful, and spectacular in the way that they move the way that they jump into the air and the splashes they create and all that kind of stuff so and fast and fast magnificent creatures all around yes indeed all right those are three great animals i don't think anybody I have, I have has about another 50 but we ran out of time <laughs> Okay. Uh, last thing before we sign off here, I always ask, have an ask for the audience at the end um, for for them to go out and do something. And it's usually something fairly simple and actionable. And when we chatted before, you had something. Would you mind sharing? I always say that nobody can do everything, and and it paralyzes a lot of people because they say, "Well, I'm only one person. I can't I can't do everything." But everybody in history was only one person. So. What, what I would like people to do is something. Mm-hmm. Just do something. Pick one thing and focus on it and do that. In the meantime, we all make decisions every day that matter. And they have to do with what we will eat, what we will drive, what kind of energy we might use if we own a home, who we will vote for what kinds of issues we will talk about, how many children we will have, and things like that. Wonderful. Well, Carl, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Oh, I enormously appreciate what you're doing and that you were interested in talking to me. So thank you so much. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life 
backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.